This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello. So glad you could join me for The Country Hour this afternoon. I'm Cassie Huff. Now, hemp is starting to settle into the rotation in South Australia. So is it a crop you'd now consider? Because uh, the fourth year of Saudi trials uh, have just wrapped up and they're assessing the results. And uh, the researcher there, Mark's you, says there are many options for the crop. It can be pressed for oil. It can also be um, hemp hearts, which are the inner part of the hemp seed without the, the crunchy outer coating. And then it also goes into hemp bars and hemp seed bars and, and so on, various um, other processed foods. It's a very versatile crop. I'll have more on that soon. I'll also bring you the details of an agriculture manufacturing business in Port Lincoln that has gone into administration. Some farmers have been caught up in that, so I'll bring you some more details on that soon. But uh, it was the week of the budget, and the Australian Meat Industry Council is calling on the federal government to improve the ag visa to stop sectors within the agriculture industry fighting for international workers. CEO Patrick Hutchinson says there should be a separate category for food supply chain workers to avoid empty supermarket shelves. Mr Hutchinson also says although he welcomes a range of measures outlined in this week's budget to support small businesses and modernise manufacturing, cutting spending on programs such as the International Freight Assistance Mechanism is a mistake. There's a lot in here that has and will really help us. Two key things that we were looking at in regards to our um, pre-budget submission was obviously the opportunity to continue the, the international freight assistance mechanism. We're still seeing issues in relation to air freight and COVID and cost that we need to get that new normal established. And also, I suppose it would be good to see in the area of the, the government, the government department, that um, uh, maybe that freezing increases to the cost of inspection over the next four years and also an investment in the department staff over four years so that we can double the technical market access group that's in there at the moment. So those were the things that we were really looking for that we didn't get. But as I said, overall, it's still fairly strong. The government has been speaking, or the Treasurer has been speaking a lot about the fact that jobs at the moment in Australia, there's a lot of people with jobs. It's finally gone below 4% unemployment. But the meat industry has been, for a long time, begging for workers. Is there anything in this budget to address that problem in your industry? What we're seeing in the budget now is that clearly that they've tried to look at how we can bring new people into the industry that goes around uh, what we call investing in our workforce and the investments that they're making, certainly in the National Skills Agreement. Um, but what overall we desperately need is, is people coming through at a larger rate than just through the National Skills Agreements and, and other areas such as that. And that comes down to an international workforce. And I'm hearing from economists this morning who were telling us that we're still seeing a trickle of people coming in, even though borders are open. We saw the outcome from Vietnam, the Australian-Vietnam agreement on workers, but we don't look, the amount of workers that are going to be able to come in, from what we understand, is capped at 1,000 across the, the whole country. So that, again, pits in an agricultural space, meat processing versus horticulture versus 
uh, potentially, you know, we're hearing it from the wool industry versus other industries, and that's not what we really want. So the key thing for us in, in our push in the and in for the election is we now are very of the strong belief that we actually need either a meat supply chain or, in fact, a food supply chain dedicated visa. That visa has to be five years. It has to have a lower English entrant so that we get the opportunity to train them and upskill them ourselves, and it has to have a path to permanent residency. We're seeing other nations around the world, our competitors like Canada, who are working down that path very quickly. And the last thing that we need to do is be left behind in that area. So very clearly, that's now where we're seeing that we're going to have to be so that we don't actually walk around and start competing with other agricultural industries for the same people. So you don't feel as though the ag visa is good enough? It has a cap on it, firstly. It is, it is good enough, absolutely. But it does have a cap on it. And we also need to be structuring it so that we're encouraging people to be staying for you know, the length of time to be moving towards permanent residency. And again, what we also want to link it to is you know, new incentive systems so that the National Skills Agreement also helps in providing skills to people who are from the international workforce who aren't permanent residents yet. So we've got to be upskilling the supply chain in order to ensure that we're feeding this nation and the world still. And if we don't think that that's really of a concern, we only need to look at what we went through in January of this year when Omicron hit our supply chain and other supply chains and there was food off the shelf. Nothing is more stark to the average consumer in this country and politician than, in fact, no food on the shelves to feed this country. And if we can't see that that has, there's the impact of Omicron, who's to know what sort of impacts that, you know, uh, further COVID issues or other uh, pandemic issues or even other non-pandemic issues may impact supply chains in the future that ensures that if we don't have enough workers, there could be food off the shelves. It's beyond an important issue. It's something that's got to underpin the community. And that's what we think is the most appropriate way forward. CEO of the Australian Meat Industry Council, Patrick Hutchinson, speaking there with Jane McNaughton, following on, obviously, from the budget earlier this week. Now, uh, we'll move away from the budget now. It has been widely canvassed to hemp. Because hemp products are really popping up in so many different products. Now, it can be a protein powder or in beauty products or even hemp-based fabrics. And the reason why I'm talking about this today is because there's a commercial growing trial underway in Coonawarra and Loxton looking at the different varieties. They've been doing this for four years now. Researchers have just finished harvesting the fourth crop in the southeast and they're still assessing some of the yield results. But Zadi researcher Mark Hughes took Megan Hughes through some of the things they've found. Things are looking pretty good, actually. We've had a really successful season. Uh, the plots uh, were really established well and grew well. have yield numbers yet. We're in the process of the grain harvested, and then we'll be weighing that to, to get our yield numbers soon. But generally, the yields are looking pretty good, so we're pretty pleased with the way it's gone. Could you talk me through the varieties that you're looking at and I guess the qualities that you're looking for in them? As we've gone through this, uh, you know, as you said, four years of trials, we have toned in on the varieties that, the types of varieties that do well in, particularly in the southeast region. So this year we've got six varieties. They're called CFX2, CRS1, Theramin 12, Panola, Katani and X59. 
which probably won't mean a lot to most people, but they are of those four are from Canada, uh, and there's a French variety and a Polish variety uh, in what we're using this year. Um, and that's where the varieties tend to come from. We've had some Chinese varieties in the past. Um, Canadian and European are, are where most of the varieties are, are coming from. And the ones we're using at the moment, particularly successful in the southeast, are grain-specific varieties. Some of them are dual-purpose, so they're a bit taller and can be used for fibre production as well. But the, the specific grain varieties do quite well. They tend to be shorter and they put more of their effort into the, the flower head and the grain production rather than growing uh, a lot of stem that in a grain production system we're not really looking for. So I guess to put that into context of you know people who don't produce hemp, you're talking about the grain, so that's the hemp seed, so that will be things like used in things like the oil and and for food. Yes, that's right. So uh, yeah, they can it can be pressed for oil. It can also be um, hemp hearts, which are the inner part of the hemp seed without the, the crunchy outer coating. And then it also goes into hemp bars and hemp seed bars and, and so on, various um, other processed foods. The hemp trials in the southeast area, are they dry land or irrigated? They are irrigated. So hemp grows best in our, in our climate during the summer. But obviously our, our rainfall isn't reliable enough to grow them purely on rainfall. They are irrigated and that's where most of the, the successful growers within the region are also growing under centre pivots as part of their normal uh, crop rotation system. They fit hemp in uh, as uh, a, a rotational crop among uh, the other uh, crops that they grow. Now, as I understand, you're also trialling hemp in Loxton. Are you trialling different varieties up there or are they the same and making that comparison in in different climates? So we're generally using the same varieties in both Loxton and, and down in the southeast. And so, yeah, the idea is to try and uh, understand how those different varieties respond to the different climates. And we have had differences in the way they do grow. Um, so as I said, the shorter varieties do well in the southeast and not so well at Loxton and the dual purpose varieties tend to do better at Loxton. The shorter varieties tend to go to flower too quickly here and, and not really produce um, um, very much in the way of yield. Taller varieties tend to grow a bit longer, get established and, and then produce decent yields. This year, so previously we've done four years of trials just within South Australia, but this year we're actually part of a national program through AgriFutures Australia. So we're part of the Industrial Hemp Variety Trials program being run partially funded by AgriFutures Australia uh, in their emerging industries portfolio. So we've actually got the same varieties or some of the same varieties at seven locations across Australia between Western Australia, Northern Territory, Victoria, Tasmania and South Australia. And so we're able to look at the performance of those varieties across a range of different, like a wider range of different climates uh, right across Australia. When will you be planting for the next season? So we'll be planting again in probably November and December. And most of the southern sites across the, the national program will be planting about that time. Uh, the northern, very tropical sites, so there's one at um, Kananurra in 
WA and one at Catherine in Northern Territory. They're planting out of season in their dry season, so they're just about to plant now for their first crops. But uh, all of the southern, central and southern sites are planting generally November, December, with some trialling and October planting as well, just to see how that goes. Do you have a plan of what your focus will be for this next year? What we're trying to do actually is just get more varieties. So six varieties is what we were able to access this year through the the national program, but we're trying to increase that range of varieties. So we'll be doing the similar times of sowing because we know that they work here. We tried a wider range early on and and realised that that November, December is really the best time. But we really want to trial as many varieties as we can so that we can find the varieties that are uh, ideally suited to each of the different climatic regions so that, yeah, growers have have got good information about what varieties they should be planting and which varieties to avoid because they're really just not going to do any good in their region. Saudi researcher Mark Skews speaking with Megan Hughes. It has been a bit of a learning curve, learning how to grow this product. It did only become legal to be grown in South Australia only a couple of years ago, so still a lot of learning to go, but they are doing a lot of work there, those trials in two very different climates, I guess, uh, Kunawara and Loxton, looking at how the different ones respond. So we'll keep following how the development of the hemp crop in South Australia is uh, going. And... uh, just uh, before I move on, I just thought I should let you know that today is the last day for dairy farmers to cast their vote in the 2022 dairy poll. Farmers contributed a percentage of their milk check to the uh, Dairy Australia to fund research and development. Now, the levy has not changed since 2012, and the Independent Levy Poll Advisory Committee has recommended a 20% rise. Uh, there are other options, though, as well, and farmers can lodge their votes by email, fax, or online at dairypoll.com.au. So if you have forgotten about that, today is the last day that you can vote in the 2022 Dairy Poll. It's coming up to 19 minutes past 12. Return home from work with Statewide Drive. How lucky are we? The flowers are extraordinary, the country smells great. They want to draw attention to this massive area with hundreds of beautiful, welcoming country towns with 120 odd thousand years of culture. You're like, that rewrites history. It was so loud and it kind of reverberated right through my chest. It was absolutely amazing. Weekdays on ABC Radio and the ABC Listen app. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Port Lincoln agriculture manufacturing business Moose Industries has entered into voluntary administration after Oracle Insolvency Services were appointed administrators last Friday. Now, initial investigations have found the company owes more than 20 creditors, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and among them, about half a dozen farmers who paid deposits of up to $50,000 for equipment that has not been delivered. Oracle's Nick Cooper says the main focus is to keep the business trading in the interim and try and manufacture and deliver as much equipment as has been paid for as possible. Yes, they are a local Port Lincoln manufacturer and they do manufacture um, farm and uh, agri-equipment and they do have a a particular niche on on certain types of uh, machinery which has been found to be quite invaluable for some farmers. Uh, Yes, it is certainly the early stages of the the administration that, that is probably about 20 or so trade suppliers um, and also perhaps unfortunately there's a number of customers who have paid uh, deposits, um, some large deposits for, for the order of, of machinery 
So those customers that pay the deposits will also be creditors as well. And and do we know how much money is owed at this stage? I, I see, you know, in in the release that that, that some of the deposits um, from those customers are, you know, in the range of around fifty thousand dollars. Do you have a, a bit of a total yet? Yes, we, we're still working through because it is in the very preliminary stages. There are a number of customers that have paid large deposits of up to fifty thousand um, dollars. But what we're trying to do to salvage uh, an unfortunate situation is to continue trading the business, at least in the interim, to see if some of those customer orders can viably be completed and at least uh, have some sort of return to those customers to pay deposits if we're able to do that. And and that's obviously a priority to try and kind of fulfil some of those orders that, that obviously have been, um, or those customers have uh, deposited, try and get those at least some of those orders out to customers? That's right, exactly. Um, as administrators, we, we do have the ability just to shut the doors, but we, we're trying to do our best to see if we can continue the business, at least trading in the interim, so we can complete as many of those customer orders as, as we possibly can. And, and do you have an idea of how many uh, employees uh, have been affected? Uh, there are a few employees. There's obviously the director himself, and there's about three to four other employees who are mostly on, on employed on a casual basis. So it's probably you know, three to four in total. It is, it is a matter that we'll probably see how it does unfold over the next couple of weeks. What we are doing as part of the process, as well as trying to, to continue trading the business and complete as many orders as we can, is to see whether the, the, the business actually can be sold or at least its assets can be sold as a whole rather than carving it up and selling it by auction. So we're, we're exploring that possibility at the moment and already speaking to one interested party. It, it has been a, a tough, uh, I guess, you know, economic climate with with COVID over the last, you know, two years almost. Is that what it has kind of come down to? Uh, it, it certainly has. It's certainly been a, a tough business for manufacturers and anyone relying upon the import of material. Uh, certainly the, the price of raw materials have, have gone through the roof and that's certainly not, not helped things along. Nick Cooper from Oracle Insolvency Services speaking with Dylan Smith. Now, uh, before we get to weather, I just thought I'd let you know that the Country Hour is going to be broadcasting live from Port Augusta tomorrow. Outback children and families are coming together for the first time in two years to celebrate 50 years of the Isolated Children's Parents Association. And uh, it's such an important organisation, ensuring uh, that uh, children who live a long way from schools still are able to access the resources that they need and we'll bring you some of the stories from the last 50 years, the issues and celebrate with them from 12 to 1 tomorrow. It is the 1st of April but it is actually happening. Um, I'm getting on the the road straight after this so I can uh, catch up with uh, some of the people who have come to Port Augusta this afternoon but uh, if you'd like to uh, let me know if there's anything you want to check out, I should check out in the region, you can text me 0467 922891 or Phone 1300 991. But uh, yeah, I'll be hitting the road this afternoon to broadcast live from Port Augusta. But it is now 24 minutes past 12. Later this month, you'll need to log in with an ABC account to watch shows on ABC iView. So if you're digging into all of Muster Dogs, Good boy. log in now to add it to your watch list so you never miss an episode. And if you're binging great dramas or comedies or docos or even Bluey, you'll be able to pick up watching where you left off across your logged in devices. Log in with your ABC account and make it yours on ABC iView. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. 
Well, it's certainly very autumnal weather at the moment and uh, rather clear across a lot of the state, but there has been a bit of wind around. So to find out how things are tracking weather-wise in South Australia at the moment, I'm joined by Senior Forecaster with the Bureau of Meteorology, Jenny Horvat. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cassie. So how are things looking? I know the winds were picking up and it was a pretty nippy morning, really. I was a bit, I think this is the coldest I've been in a little while this morning. Yeah, that's right. Some of those minimum temperatures are starting to get cool, so we're definitely feeling that change of season. But this, um, the winds are due to a strengthening high-pressure system that we've got centred south of the bite, so it is directing this fresh to strong southeast east, sorry southeasterly airstream over the states, and um, it is a little bit um, strong at times around our coast. So we do actually have quite a few marine warnings out, pretty much for all coasts except for the, the far west. So if anyone was planning to head out on the waters today and even tomorrow, we'll still have quite a few wind warnings out there. Just double-check the, the winds on the on the website. That's www.bom.gov.au. And, yeah, it's going to be pretty stable with that high-pressure system for the next couple of days, just um, staying in the in the bite will eventually weaken later into the into the weekend but yes yeah, still a few more um, breezy days to come through and especially around the coastal fringes and again around Augusta at times around that lofty ranges especially sort of in the evening times and at first in the mornings um, generally we are looking at some of those milder temperatures and it did get pretty chilly um, this morning in parts where we did see some of our minimum temperatures generally below average we saw temperatures getting down to sort of eight degrees for our minimums in the in the southeast, so a little bit cool there, and I guess not dissimilar again tomorrow morning. Having a look at some of the temperatures around the state today, we are looking at temperatures a little bit sort of on the cool to mild side around the coast, but getting a little bit warmer as we head inland. So we're looking at around. Um, 22 degrees for Port Lincoln today, likewise for Wyala. Sejuna 23, Port Augusta 24, 25. Um, for Lee Creek, 26 for Roxby Downs and Port Pirie. Hawker, 24 degrees. Moomba, 28. Grandmark, we're looking at around 25 degrees. Murray Bridge, 23. Victor Harbour, around 19 degrees. Mount Gambier, also around 19. So a little bit cooler there. We've got that cloud still hanging around the south, um, around our southern coast and around Air Peninsula. We did see a little bit of rainfall in the last 24 hours up until 9am, um, but not too much. We generally saw falls less than a millimetre, but some of our ones around a millimetre, Cleve picking up a millimetre, likewise at Kingstoke. We did see uh, 1.4 millimetres around Parowa and Inman Valley, so they were the highest totals for the period, and down in the southeast, east and Mount Gambier Airport picking up 1.2 millimetres. With this high pressure system sitting there, we'll still probably still have some cloudy mornings in the in the south, but with that sun breaking through later in the day, we are coming into a bit of a, a dry period as we roll on into the into the weekend. So we did have the potential to still see a little bit of light shower activity with that cloud around those windward coasts today, but I feel like there's really not too much left, not much showing up on the radar. But again, we're looking at a dry day for Friday throughout the state. Again, mild in the south, grading to warm in the far northeast. Still those fresh and gusty southeasterly winds and gusty at times and strong out on the coast. On Saturday, again, another dry day. We may um, see those winds easing off a little bit as they tend a little bit more easterly and we will start to see a little bit more warmth coming into the west 
on Saturday. Another dry day on Sunday. We're generally looking at mild to warm conditions throughout the, the state with those light to moderate southeast to easterly winds. We could see some local coastal sea breezes around there. On Monday morning, could be a little bit of fog patches around the, the south, but then again, another dry day throughout the state and becoming a little bit warmer and even hot in the west. On Tuesday, it gets a little bit interesting. We might start to see a little bit of weather coming across from the west, but we'll see how that pans out. Still a lot of uncertainty with our guidance, so some showers coming midweek, Cassie. Well, hopefully there's more than showers because I think people are starting to look <laughs> for the rain. So thanks so much for that, Jenny. Thank you. Jenny Hill about their senior forecaster with the Bureau of Meteorology. In the far west of New South Wales, the upper western and lower western are pretty similar. It's going to be sunny overnight. We'll get down to 14 to 17 degrees in the upper western, 11 to 14 in the lower western, but the daytime temperatures will reach the high to mid uh, 30s, the mid to high 30s, I should say. And uh, it is coming up to 12.30 here on the Country Hour. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Good afternoon. I'm so glad you could join me today. Hasn't this last two years been just topsy-turvy. I'm sure many of you haven't been able to move around and perhaps uh, do as many things as you would have liked to and uh, are trying other ways of experiencing new things. And perhaps that means trying different food. Well, some of you have definitely tried new foods because would you believe the production of goat meat has doubled in the last 12 months, both here and overseas? On the demand side, the global demand for goat, particularly in North America, just continues to grow annually. But the industry thinks there could be a big increase here in Australia as well. We think that there hopefully is an opportunity where we can normalise goat meat as just another protein source. And uh, on any given weeknight, soccer mums and dads in any city in Australia could go into their IGA or their Woolies or the Coles and, and goat would be uh, in the meat uh, section uh, alongside beef or lamb or, or pork or chicken just as, a, as another viable protein source. Do you currently use goat? I must admit, I have eaten goat. I've never cooked it, but I have eaten it, and it has been delicious. Um, it was slow cooked, but I'm thinking with this increasing interest, I might give it a go. So I would love to hear from you if you've got any good goat recipes or, or ways that you like to cook with goat. Call me on one three hundred triple two eight nine one or text on zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one. We're coming into winter, which I think is sort of more of a slow cooking time. I think that's possibly the best way to eat goat. That's the way I have eaten goat. So uh, it might be uh, good to get a bit of a group think on some inspiration going into some of the cooler months. But we'll find out what's happening in uh, news first, though. I'm joined by Chris McLaughlin. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. The head of Australia's domestic spy agency says there's a risk of isolated and opportunistic violence during the federal election campaign. The Australian Federal Police will establish a task force to protect politicians and candidates during the campaign. Several politicians have revealed threats against their safety in recent months. Citrus SA is backing a proposal from the sector's national body to introduce a standard licensing scheme for labour hire across Australia. Under the proposal, all labour hire firms and producers would sign up to a national agreement to standardise practices across all states and police wage theft on farms. 
the Independent Commission Against Corruption will review TAFE SA to prevent and minimise corruption. In a statement, the Commissioner, Anne Vanstone, says as the provider of vocational education to more than 60,000 students, it's essential that TAFE SA has effective systems to prevent corruption. The head of UK spy agency GCHQ says demoralised Russian troops in Ukraine have sabotaged their weapons and even accidentally shot down their own aircraft. Sir Jeremy Fleming has told the National Security College in Canberra that Vladimir Putin has massively miscalculated in the invasion. He says Putin's advisers may be too scared to tell him the full truth. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Chris. Now, uh, we'll kick off uh, with the topic that has been quite uh, important lately, and that is Japanese encephalitis. It seems trials for a Japanese encephalitis vaccine for animals could start in uh, under 12 weeks and could be available for commercial use within a year. Travis Beto, who is the Professor of Agricultural Biochemistry at La Trobe University, explains to Megan Hughes how the technology works. We have a platform, vaccine platform, we've been developing here at Latrobe, which allows us to rapidly scale up production against certain diseases. And JEV is going to be one of our models that we are going to try to trial. So walk me through what the trial would look like. Yeah, so basically the technology allows us to place an antigen from JEV on the surface of our um, bacterium. We grow that bacterium, kill it, and then we will uh, inject that into pigs on farm and we will, in areas which have potentially JEV, and we'll then um, measure immune responses against that vaccine to see if it lowers the level of JEV in pigs. How long is this process expected to take? A platform, we can have it up an antigen ready within less than 12 weeks to the trial. That's a that's a quite a short amount of time. Yeah, it is, and that depends. I mean, there's been a lot of research on antigens in JEV, so that sort of helps us build that up. For other diseases, which have uh, a lot more unknowns about them, um, it would take longer to do that. But with diseases which we have a, a, a fair understanding of which proteins are the key antigens, we we can rapidly develop um, vaccines, potential vaccines for those diseases. So that's, you know, less than 12 weeks to a trial stage, but how long do you think it would be until they're commercially available for piggeries to to use? We would do the trials, and the trials can last probably three, four months to six months. We will test those antibodies for um, detection and if that was um, satisfactory we would go into reduction straight away and so that's our collaboration with Apium and then yeah the production would be rapidly quick. I don't know exactly on their production side because that's not my area of expertise but I can imagine they could probably do that fairly rapidly. Is, is the current outbreak of Japanese encephalitis in the southern states, uh, Victoria, South Australia, New South Wales, and even into Queensland, is that what's triggered this research that you're undertaking? Yes, that, that's part of it. But secondly, we also were in the process of, you know, we were developing platforms for several animal diseases and just 
Unfortunately, or fortunately, that JV popped up, so it would make a very good test case to, to trial our technology on. Are you receiving any funding from any research and development organisations, from the Australian government or anything like that? Currently, not at the moment. We're in discussion with various groups about trying to get funding for this project. Have you been in discussions at all with some of the agricultural industry organisations about interest in a vaccine? Yes, we've had discussions with April, which is the Australian Pork Research Institute, and they forwarded the inquiry to Australian Pork Limited. So they're aware of the technology. We're just waiting to hear back from them. Now, as I understand, the trials will be happening in pigs, but is there going to be future work maybe looking at horses as well? There is potential to to look whether the vaccine would be effective in horses, and I don't see why not. I mean, pigs would be the first port of call, but then, yeah, if that's successful, uh, I can't see why we wouldn't trial it into horses next. As I understand, Latrobe is partnering with APM in Bendigo where these vaccines could potentially be manufactured. Could you run me through, I guess, some of the details of that partnership? Been in discussions with APM for a little while to trial our vaccine technology for a variety of swine diseases and they're um, quite willing to come on board and help commercialise this technology. And so it's still in the infancy, but hoping that, you know, with the need for JV, we will be able to accelerate that collaboration. Yeah, hopefully they can get an effective one soon. That was Travis Beddo, who is a professor of agricultural biochemistry at La Trobe University, speaking with Megan Hughes because uh, there are uh, there were a couple of new cases found in pigs this week and in alpaca as well. So... Uh, there is definitely still an issue here in South Australia. Now, uh, a long-running issue that we've been canvassing on this program is labour hire. And with the federal election looming, agriculture lobby groups are starting to list their priorities. Citrus Australia is calling for a standard licensing scheme for labour hire across Australia. They say having one set of rules and a watchdog will reduce worker exploitation and even the playing field for employers. Citrus SA Chair Mark Dakey tells Sam Bradbrook they're backing this proposal. We think it's absolutely a good idea and we totally agree with Citrus Australia. Anything to make the things that we need to do, like labour hire, smoother, a smoother operation, we'll be in favour of. If we've got a national scheme and then pickers can move around the country under the same rules as they do from commodity to commodity, season to season, that's got to be a good thing. What issues do you think that it would solve, both from a producer's point of view and perhaps from a labour hire point of view as well? Well, it will simplify the system, A, and B, it should help to um, get rid of the dodgy contractor. If everyone's playing by the same rules in all states, it should make it harder for the dodgy contractor to operate. In the current system now, what are some of the weaknesses you feel that allow that kind of thing to happen? Well, probably a lack of understanding of the, the system because a lot of contractors aren't really that good with English. Yeah, so English is one and just the, the lack of understanding and the difference in rules in states is the, the main couple of things that allow uh, those guys to operate. And the Consumer Commission's decision for a uh, minimum wage for horticulture workers um, is coming in soon. Um, 
does bringing in a national scheme like this, you think, again, just make sure everyone complies with that new rule that the producers who are the who are doing the right thing will be complying with? Uh, well, that's one thing, but the, the fair work decision to virtually try to rid uh, the, the workplace of peace rates has unintended or intended consequences, like all of a sudden, anyone who can't pick a bin of oranges in an hour is virtually unemployed. And we had a lot of people, like we had old people that would come and do their three or four bins a day and they were quite happy doing that. And lower skilled workers who, who are quite happy doing a little bit of work, all of a sudden they're gone because they can't, you can't be employing a person all day to pick one bin of oranges and be expected to pay them eight hours. It just won't happen. So unfortunately for a lot of people, they've lost their jobs out of that. What would you like to see from a national labour hire licensing scheme? What specific things do you think need to be included to make sure it would work? Just the understanding, make sure the contractors, whatever nationality or wherever they're from, understand the rules, uniform dot point set of rules for them. Um, and that's that's the main thing. If they all understand the rules and, they, and then you have to police those rules as well at some point to make sure there's a little bit of compliance or there is compliance, um, I think that's where it's fallen down to date. We don't have policing. Uh, Fair Work brings a rule in and, and walks away. No one actually ever follows it up, so that's part of the problem. Citrus SA Chair Mark Dakey speaking to Sam Bradbrook. And uh, we uh, are going to move over to what I was talking about before with the goat meat as it is 13 minutes to one on the program. And... Uh, We've just had a text in from Bruce saying that uh, he reckons the goat curry at William Creek Pub is brilliant. Thanks so much for texting in because it seems he's not the only one who has a bit of a taste for the goat meat, Bruce. Uh, Increasing appetites abroad for goat meat have led to Australian processors doubling their production in the past five months. And uh, goat producers are starting to see huge untapped potential in this domestic market. So I would love to know if you're among these people who are perhaps ramping up how much they're eating goat or it's just something you've always liked or maybe it's something you want to try, text me on 0467 922 or phone 1300 991. But Lara Webster is just going to give you a sense of just what a big deal goat meat seems to be at the moment. Thomas Foods International processes goats predominantly in South Australia. Most of them are sourced from Western Queensland and New South Wales, particularly Burke. The company's national livestock manager, Paul Leonard, says production has increased significantly in the last five months, thanks to a number of factors, including increasing overseas demand. So we've started to see you know, a lot better management of goats that, um, that growers are, um, you know, have the capacity to, as I said, put them behind wire to breed them to be able to deliver them in a timely fashion rather than, you know, previously where it was really opportunistic if they happened to come onto the property at the certain time and they happened to um, muster them at the certain time. So I think that's been the big changes, the change in seasonality, the change in people's enterprises with goats, obviously with the value of goats, so that's the, on the supply side, so that's been fantastic. And then you're quite right, on the demand side, the global demand for goat, particularly in North America, just continues to grow annually. While Paul Leonard and Thomas Foods are focused on exports, producers say there's a huge opportunity to increase consumption in the domestic market. James Bolan is part of Big Ampy Pastoral, an enterprise made up of six families at Menindee and Mount Hope in New South Wales that's running close to 20,000 goats. He would like to see goat meat on Australia's supermarket shelves. We think that they're 
basically is an opportunity where we can normalise goat meat as just another protein source. And uh, on any given weeknight, soccer mums and dads in any city in Australia could go into their IGA or their Woolies or their Coles and, and goat would be uh, in the meat uh, section uh, alongside beef or lamb or, or pork or chicken just as a as another viable protein source. We're not there. We're not there yet, but we think that there's a there's a massive opportunity for us, and uh, that's why we're we're very excited and uh, about expanding our numbers and uh, and shifting away from merinos and cattle. Mr. Boland says initially they were mainly running merino sheep and just harvesting feral goats when they had a chance. But with the value of goat meat rising, their focus has shifted to breeding. I think that. There are two schools of thought from a producer level. One is uh, harvesting uh, wild-caught feral goats and uh, uh, processing what's big enough to process. Uh, and the other school of thought is investing more heavily in infrastructure uh, containing the goats and controlling their, uh, their the husbandry and controlling their health and nutrition and uh, body condition score and joining times. And, and so that's where we've moved to, that we run our goats in a very very similar manner than you would that you'd run a prime lamb uh, business as far as uh, management of the of the females and control joining and uh, and various husbandry practices. So uh, we do that for two main reasons. Uh, we think that the domestic market presence is going to uh, demand uh, continue uh, continuity of supply and also consistency of uh, the quality of the product. And we think that the way that we can solve for both of those things is if we manage the goat. The rising price of goats has also led to some goat theft. Earlier this month, a man was sentenced in Griffith to a 12-month intensive correction order for several charges relating to goat poaching. Detective Sergeant Damien Knott is part of the New South Wales Rural Crime Prevention Team. There's a lot of factors that determine what we see with the patterns and that can obviously be um, seasonal conditions and how much rain, how much feed, all of those sort of things. Uh, the commodity price is always a factor that um, seems to impact on levels of theft. Uh, and so we know that goats uh, are quite valuable at the moment. Um, and in previous years, there's certainly more than previous years. So, but there's other you know, impacts as well. So just with the price of um, diesel and other fuels at the moment, just even people who would be of a mind to um, be poaching goats a little bit more difficult for them to get around as well. So there's a lot of factors that sort of dictate that there's no hard and fast pattern with what we're seeing. Detective Sergeant Knott says when it comes to goats, there's an important difference between a feral goat and a domesticated goat. Of course, there is the domesticated breeding lines of goats such as boars that are you know bred out for that specific purpose of being in captivity. And then there's the what we know as rangeland goats. They used to be called feral goats. And they're a different story again. And there's a little bit of circumstances around where the, where they can be lawfully taken from, and and where if they're accessed, they, it becomes an offence of poaching those goats or, or unlawfully obtaining or stealing those goats. People are encouraged to report any instances of goat theft to police. Lara Webster reporting there with some additional reporting from Olivia Carver. And uh, I've been wanting some tips from you on how to eat goat because I've been a bit inspired by this story. So text me on 0467922 or phone 1300 Now, uh, a few people have uh, texted in. Emily from Laura in the Mid-North uh, says that she likes to make curry with goat. 
goat curry does seem to be a pretty popular option here. I choose any red meat curry recipe and substitute goat for the meat. Rogan Josh is a favourite. Thanks so much for your text there. Andrew also sent in a text. He likes to roast goat slowly, but because it has less fat than lamb, you have to adjust your cooking style slightly so the meat doesn't get tough. Long and slow is the key. Love the tips there because I am a little bit more comfortable uh, cooking with lamb, so that's good to know that you've got to uh, adjust slightly so uh, to, to lamb, so I'll keep an eye out for that. But uh, Dave also has uh, noticed that over the past few years, the price of goat in South Australia has gone through the roof due to domestic demand, uh, increasing by multiple folds. It's uh, uh, due to an increase in the migrant population. We love our goat meat. I think that is true. There are more, more migrants from maybe some of the Middle Eastern countries that are very much more comfortable with the eating goat. Um, goat's much more a part of their diet, so it's starting to come into the uh, more mainstream diet in South Australia, well, in South Australia and Australia as well. So uh, loving some of these ideas, roast goat, goat curry. If you've got anything maybe a little bit more out there, do let me know. 0467-922-891 is the number to text me or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. It's coming up to 10 to 1. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Now, uh, while I'm talking uh, about meat, we've been talking about pretty traditional protein source, but Australia is uh, well positioned to become a global delicatessen for protein, according to the National Science Agency, CSIRO. The CSIRO's latest protein report outlines ways for Australia to tap into alternative protein markets, including white flesh fish, edible insects and better tasting legumes. Professor Michelle Colgrave says Australia's reputation as a high quality food producer puts the country in a prime position to take advantage of some of these emerging markets. So what we're seeing is the growing global population, of course, and we're seeing an emerging middle class in regions like Asia. But in Australia, we're also seeing changing consumer preferences. So we know that we have up to a third of Australians who are now either seeking flexitarian or reducitarian diets, uh, which means that they still consume products like red meat and seafood, but they might do so less frequently or they might have a reduced portion size. And so in doing so, they're seeking alternatives, which includes things like plant-based protein, and also they're looking at a new and emerging things like insects that could be used as fortified products into our food systems, or we're even looking at new technologies like precision fermentation, which is akin to what we do with brewing, where we use yeast to produce beer. But in this case, we're actually starting to make tailored proteins that can deliver health benefits or unique functionality into new food products. So what are the economic benefits here? When we look at this, um, we, we know that we already export around 70% of the food that we produce. And what we're aiming to do is we're aiming to, in some industries, we're looking at providing that brand Australia, so being able to leverage on our, our great reputation as a clean and green nation and deliver premium products into export markets. So we've got uh, the, the benefits that can come from an economic perspective in our traditional protein industries like red meat and aquaculture, we're also looking at capturing a greater part of the protein pie in terms of plant protein and we're looking at creating new industries for Australia and that means that we'll be able to create jobs, especially in regions, and that will help with uh, regional resilience. We're also looking at the environmental benefits that can come from a diversification of our protein offerings 
which means that we might have uh, lesser footprint for some of our protein production systems. We may be using less water or less solvents and less energy. So this means that we can continue to increase our protein production, but without having a, a negative impact on the environment. With an expected 2 billion extra people on the planet by 2050, what kind of timeline are we looking at on this roadmap here? Yeah, so there's different opportunities that are at different stages. So we know that, um, for instance, we've been producing meat and, and seafood and plant protein for over 100 years. And what we're looking at is how do we grow some of these opportunities? In the case of our aquaculture, we've got a white flesh fish industry, which is relatively small, but we've got an opportunity to scale it and grow it over three to five years. And that means that we will actually be able to reduce the reliance on imported uh, white flesh fish products, of which we currently import around 90%. So we've got an opportunity to change that right here and right now. Um, With plant protein, we need to develop scaled up infrastructure to uh, really be able to onshore some of our manufacturing. We grow all the crops here, but now we need to be able to turn those crops into ingredients that can go into food manufacturing. So that's, that's a critical part. And so there's, it's going to take a little bit of time to establish that manufacturing capability, but it could be achieved in two to four years. We know that some traditional farmers find the new advances in science, things like plant-based meat, to be somewhat of a threat to their industry. Are these new proteins a threat to the traditional agricultural economy? No, absolutely not. In fact, what we say is that there's a seat at the table for everyone on this opportunity. We know that protein demand is, is going to exceed what we can possibly produce. So it's just a question of how do we access those export markets? And part of that is in delivering the right integrity systems to ensure that the Australian brand um, is maintained as it goes from our farms all the way to the fork, whether that be on Australian plates or overseas. So there's, there's opportunities to value add to red meat, the lesser cuts of meat, and produce nutraceuticals and even protein ingredients for smoothies and the like to address the consumer health and wellness markets. But there's also opportunities in plant protein to complement and in these emerging industries. But there's so much demand that there's no one that's going to miss out. CSIRO Future Protein Mission Lead Professor Michelle Colgrave speaking with Jane McNaughton. Now, uh, quite a few of you like to cook with uh, goat. It's great to hear. I'm, I'm very keen to get these tips. Now, Antonia in the Adelaide Hills is very au fait with uh, cooking with uh, goat meat. Uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you going? I'm well, thanks. So you like to make dishes with goat that are Greek-based. What are some of those? Yeah. Yes, um, one of the main ones that I cook that the family tends to love is baked goat shoulder over a bed of potato. Um, I put uh, chunks of feta underneath it amongst the potato, lots of oregano, lots of olive oil and plenty of lemon. And it's an absolute stunner here. <laughs> oh, wow. And slowly cooked? Is that the trick or you don't? Yeah, yeah baked. So um, I generally put it in like one of those big Dutch oven pots that um, is, you know, those really heavy sort of pots. Cast iron sort of ones yeah yep and take the lid off for the last little bit so it kind of gets a little bit of a, a crispiness on the top of it it's absolutely divine <laughs> it sounds divine. it Very every simple. ingredient you listed there I love so um yep. I think that would be a winner for me as well Ned yep. do you do you cook with goat because it's a family heritage or do you particularly um, like what got you into it 
Yeah, partly. Um, in in Greece, um, my mother-in-law tells me that it's more of a predominant um, meat than what it is here in Australia. So they would use um, goat meat rather than lamb. And I spent some time up on some stations doing a fair bit of mustering. So we just started to use it a little bit and I got a little bit um, proficient with, with cooking with it. So it, it's actually not dissimilar to lamb. It doesn't always have to be slow cooked. Seared is is okay as well. It's a little bit like kangaroo because it's more gamey. Mm-hmm. But I just find, um, yeah, if I can get it, you know, a, a reasonable size animal, not an old one sort of thing, it's, it comes up really nice. It's absolutely delicious. And do you have children? Yes. Yeah, I've got one little baby. That's oh, okay. Right now. I was just going to say, how do, the, how do the kids take to it? Because I must admit, I grew up on a sheep property, so I grew up yeah. eating lamb. But I um, I must, like, I love it now. But when I was a kid, when you had chops for five nights of the week and then maybe a roast uh, another night, you get a bit yeah. over it. But I was the, I'm wondering if um, you sort of uh, had the same thing with goat, but it doesn't sound like it if they're yeah. only a baby. Um, oh, look, the, the younger kids in our family actually don't mind it. Um, it's, it's very similar to, you know, having a meat on, well, they call it meat on the bone, so just a, a chop handle sort of thing. The only difference is the bone is sort of rounded. It's not kind of like a flat bone like a lamb bone. So, yeah, it's, it's quite delicious. They, they enjoy it. Um, they probably wouldn't even know the difference to the <laughs> no. truth. <laughs> no, a slightly stronger flavour from what you've been saying, but but pretty similar. Yeah. Well, I, I'm pretty really similar. excited now. It's it's sort of coming into the season. Oh, hello. Um, <laughs> uh, for slow cooking. So uh, I look forward to trying yeah, yeah. A, a Greek-based uh, goat dish. Thank you so much for your call today. Anytime, anytime. Antonia from the Adelaide Hills there with a beautiful sounding Greek dish. I think uh, she bakes it over potatoes with lemon and feta and oregano. Beautiful. Sounds great. I'll give that one a crack. And uh, another person who doesn't mind a cook, I don't. uh, Sonia Feldhoff, do you like cooking? I like cooking. Well, I like cooking when I've got time to cook. I'm like most people. You know, when you feel compelled every day to do something, it. I've lost Lose my the sheen, yeah, yeah. I've lost my my love of cooking that I used to have. But when you're doing it just for fun, that is great. It is. Are you a goat? I'm happy to eat goat, and I've had people cook me goat. I had a lovely goat curry from my neighbour one one time not all that long ago. But I've never actually tried it myself. So yeah, I mean, either that's why I'm. I'm more tips. ignorant about it rather than opposed to it. Yes, right. you know. Yes. Ah, uh, but beyond goat, what else is coming <laughs> what else? up? Nothing really, is it? No. <laughs> uh, a few changes in our schools, um, and that is prompting lots of questions about what happens when vanda- vaccine mandates get lifted completely. We're going to take a look at the industrial law side of things. What are employers going to have to start getting their heads around, not just in our schools or passenger transport sectors, but other sectors, uh, as we move towards a, a no mandate kind of zone? Absolutely. There's a bit to unpack there. Keep listening to your ABC local radio. Just one last text in on the goat meat situation. Dominic says that it depends on the age of the goat. Well, that's very similar with the sheep as well, lamb as well. I mean, I tend to eat a a hogget, which is uh, a bit older than lamb. So I know exactly what you're saying there, uh, Dominic. I don't think Sonia's a fan of hogget, though. Keep listening, though, to her. Anyway, it is coming up to one o'clock. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.